Welcome to Rethinking Aloud, the podcast for the Diocese of Leicester. This week's podcast on music and worship is split into two parts. So let's join John Barrett and his guests now for part one. Hello and welcome after a summer break of a week to Rethinking Aloud, podcasting for the Diocese of Leicester to encourage thought, conversation, discussion and reflection about God, about theology, church, culture and society. Uh, And today we're going to be thinking about music in worship, Uh, perhaps about why music is important in worship, Uh, about different styles of worship music, uh, about the blessings and the pitfalls that Christian communities can experience when we get our worship right and when we get it wrong. So it should be a really exciting conversation today. Uh, And I'm joined for this podcast by Chris Ouvry-Johns, Director of Music at Leicester Cathedral, passionate about music and worship, Best known in Leicester for his work with our cathedral choirs and playing the organ, but secrets about to be revealed back in the day. He did play in a gigging rock band doing cover versions and he played the piano for the Christian Union at university. Um, Also joined today by Reverend Eleanor Jeans. Uh, She was formerly a curate in this diocese, uh, now associate vicar of Christ the King Church in Kettering in Peterborough Diocese. Uh, And like Chris, she's got a a diverse musical story. Um, several strings to her bow, which is an appropriate pun, uh, because before ordination, she was a professional violinist, uh, classically trained, played with a Halley Orchestra. Uh, but her ministry has been mostly in churches whose preferred musical style might be referred to as more contemporary. Uh, she's led and played in worship bands in church, written worship songs and a children's musical, run community gospel choirs and appreciates the whole range from classical to modern. And my third and final guest is Joel Payne. She worships at St Barnabas Grange Park in Loughborough, uh, a recent plant from Emmanuel Loughborough, one of our diocesan resourcing churches. Uh, he's a volunteer worship leader, uh, but his day job is working for Resound Worship, where he writes words and music for worship songs, leads a team of writers and works with around 150 other local church songwriters across the UK and in the US. And previous to that, he was a full-time worship pastor in York and London for 15 years and he lectures in worship studies, but also carrying on this crossover theme, uh, also he's involved in the panel who, who are involved with Jubilate hymns. So quite a mixture there. What a great panel. Uh, and here's my first question. Why music in worship? Oh, shall I go first? Um, uh, why music in worship? Well, I mean, the Bible talks about it all over the place. Um, if we think about the Psalms, Psalms are full of, of references to singing, to new songs, to worship um, in, in music with instruments and all sorts. And, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, um, I was preaching on the Psalm 42 yesterday and I was reminded of the the sons of Korah, who were the, the sort of priests in charge of sung worship. Um, and so the Old Testament's full of it. The New Testament's full of it. Just one example, Jesus um, and the disciples, they um, they sang a hymn um, on the Mount of Olives. Just one example there. I, th- I think there's another thing about the fact that we are the body of Christ and there is something corporate about singing that is hard to find in any other media, really. There's something special about singing together and, and worshipping together. I mean, that's why football fans do it on the, on the terraces. Um, I think the other thing is that it's an emotional thing. It engages with us, not just in, in our minds, but in our hearts, in our whole being. And and there's something really powerful about music and, and words together. So, you know, why why not have music in worship? It's, it's massively important, I believe. 
Um, I, I think I'd agree with all of that, um, and, and particularly um, I uh, recognise what you said, Eleanor, about the, the corporate aspect of it. One of the things that we have really missed, um, those of us that um, rehearse music day in, day out, we've really missed being with other people, being alongside them, feeling the air that they make move when they sing, mm-hmm. um, moving with us, because you can do a choir practice over Zoom, but it's it's nothing like doing it in real life. Mm-hmm. Um I think as far as the general question goes, I you know, may t- maybe take it um, more broadly and ask, why do we have music with anything at all? Mm. Um, and if you look at how music is used um, in the secular world as well, we use it to mark the important milestones in our life. So a couple might talk about our song, which is the, mm. the, the music that was playing on their first date or when marriage was proposed. Um, they don't talk about our colour, which is the, you know, the colour of the, 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 the tablecloth or the, the, the tie <laughs> that the waiter was wearing. Um, and weddings and funerals, whether they're religious ceremonies or not, are almost unthinkable without music of some kind. Um, imagine a film without music. The, the, the music contributes to the uh, the mood and the atmosphere. Um, and it's an interesting experiment, actually. And um, my old school music teacher, who happens also to have been my mother, um, did this with uh, her year nine classes. We did a, a project on film music and we watched part of a film with the sound turned down. Um, and then with the sound turned up, we had to sort of try and guess what was going on. There was no dialogue. Um, and it really um, helps you appreciate just how much the music contributes to the mood. So I think it boils down to music being able to say what words can't and being able to access our emotions in a really um, direct way. Um, and that, of course, is one of the reasons why it's so powerful um, and why it can be a force for good um, and um, uh, a force for not so good. We may come on to that in a moment. What strikes me currently is that certainly in the contemporary worship world, music is almost exclusively means singing in church. And obviously we can't sing at the moment for, for obvious reasons. But, um, but then we ask the question, well, can we worship? And the answer has to be, well, yes, of course we can worship. So it's really, uh, it's testing, I think, for lots of churches and thinkers about worship our theology of worship having to say oh well, we had something taken away at least temporarily and if we can still worship how do we now hold and understand the value of it i think that will develop over the coming months in the way we think about these things yeah. i think there's clearly of course we can still worship but um there's then the question is something missing from our worship if we can't sing together the um services that the cathedral's been putting out on youtube um have all included at least one hymn um and we've we've done that with uh, we, we've multi-tracked it so there've been um singers on the recording um and the idea is that if people want to they can sing along at home that won't be the same experience as singing the hymn in the cathedral um but um, uh, I, I just wonder how much is how much is missing when you when you take out the music. And it's interesting because we're already talking, I guess, effectively about sung music within corporate worship, uh, and the word worship itself. I, I, I guess we tend to see it as synonymous with, or, or another way, a shorthand for when we come together, particularly when we come together and are singing together. But actually, worship is about how we ascribe worth to God in every aspect of our lives. And it's both individual and corporate, isn't it? So it's interesting how how we slip straight away into one kind of aspect of what worship is, um, just as we talk about it. Yeah. I mean, some, some of the stuff we 
picking up on some of the stuff we've been talking about there, we've uh, we've noted that music in worship is biblical. Um, uh, I guess we've noticed that it has the ability to touch both the emotions and the mind uh, in a unique way. Uh, and, and Chris almost alluded to this or just sort of dropped in something slightly tantalising there about kind of strengths and dangers. Uh, yeah, music obviously has this affective quality. This It affects how we feel or how we receive things. What are, do you guys think, the strengths and the dangers um, that come along with that? Maybe I'll go first, seeing as I kind of uh, uh, dropped it into my last answer. <laughs> I think in many ways, if you think of it like a knife, um, you can use a knife for good. If you're a, a good enough cook, you can use it to chop food and um, create something wonderful. Um or if you're so minded, you can use it to inflict um, great injury on people. Um, and um, to take an example of music as a force for good, music therapy is something about which I know very little. But um, Alzheimer's patients, for example, um, typically continue to respond to music long after they appear to have lost other cognitive abilities. Um, and um, I know um, through the experience of a, a friend who had a, a child at Rainbow's Hospice, just how much music therapy um, brought to, um, to her little boy's short life. Um, it, it provided a way for him to express himself, even though he didn't have the language skills to talk about how he was feeling, um, or uh, with, with children who maybe had um, more language ability um, than, than he had. Um gave them a way to express themselves and what they were feeling was just too difficult to put into words. Um, and at the other extreme, uh, oppressive regimes of all kinds have used music as a, a tool of indoctrination. Um, the uh, Possibly the most famous example is the Horst Wessel song, which was um, the, the kind of second, well, it was officially the second na national anthem in Nazi Germany. Um, and I, I won't read the lyrics here. They're not, they're not, uh, um, they're not quite offensive, but they're the kinds of things where you can see that combined with sort of uplifting military type march music would stir people to do the kinds of things that they might not otherwise dream of doing. And interestingly, the lyrics and the tune of that song are now banned in Germany. Um, so I wouldn't want to say any particular style of music is intrinsically good or intrinsically bad, because I have seen that. Um, uh, argued elsewhere, but I think it's I think it's how it's used. We need to recognise that it is a really really powerful tool. Mm. Mm. You're, you're both a, a lyricist and you know and someone who leads worship presumably from the front um, and also writes you know the music that goes along. With. So so where would you see within a worshiping a corporate worship context? Where would you see uh, again picking up on what Chris was saying, both those strengths and those pitfalls, those dangers perhaps. Well, I think we've already established that music is intrinsically emotional in that it connects with with emotions, and I think that as humans, we are. I mean, it's just part of what it means to be human, isn't it? And you know, Jesus came, and what Je what Jesus has done is to restore humanity, not replace it. And so, I think just kind of being fully human in our worship makes an awful lot of sense. And of course, emotions are part of our response to the world. You know, without them, we'd be useless. We, if we didn't experience fear, we'd never run away, and 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 so on. Um, if we didn't experience love, we'd never form form bonds. But also, the kind of the pointed emotions in a moment, in, the strengths. I mean, particular strengths is that worship is incredibly formative. You know, when we sing particular words, and especially by repetition, they form us. They they dig in. And when it's connected to an emotion, research shows that it it, it 
literally forms physical synaptic pathways that your brain then wants to travel along again. So I think it can play a really valuable role there. But yeah, exactly as Chris said, you can quite easily see the, the flip side of that. But I also think it helps us to understand that a relationship with God is not merely an intellectual an intellectual mm. exercise. Uh, it is it's a real relationship, and we have have emotions and all of those. But I also think about for myself as a as a worship leader in a contemporary context. Um, I, I'm aware that when I plan my my uh, the worship that I'm going to lead, I think very carefully about what the words say, and I think about oh. how the melodies move in between each other and the progression and all these kind of things. But actually, when I assess it in the moment, I'm often looking for the hands in the air because I'm sort of just, it's the, the signal that some emotional response has happened. And I think we can then begin to associate an emotional response with God or, or as people would put it, with the presence of the Holy Spirit or, or other things. So I think I think that's definitely a danger. And I think the other thing is that if we we can make certain emotions sort of normal or normative in worship by constantly heading for those, and we begin to downgrade or even shame other emotions because we, if we don't do them in our corporate worship, and you know some of those will be some of the more negative ones quite often. And yet the reality is lots of people are experiencing those. And if they could come to God with those emotions in worship, then it's a much more holistic uh, experience. And that's something I'd love to come back to that later on uh, and explore that a little bit more uh, about some of the, the, the why and the what of our singing and whether it does actually reflect the whole of the kind of breadth of our of our christian life and discipleship um, mm. but, but but another kind of general question um yeah we, we we talk about oh this is a really good worship song this is a really good old hymn um or whatever but what elements do you think it's been really fascinating but what, what elements do you think need to be in place in order for a hymn or a worship song or a choral work to be good um, or what my adult son and daughter would describe as a banger. You know, what what needs to be in place for that to be the case? Well, do you know, um, people send me their worship songs and people bring me their worship songs. I run workshops and, and other things. And, and that's the question often they want to know, is it any good? Or how can I make it better, which is sometimes an easier way to, to think about it. What are the things I ought to look at? Um, and one of the ways I often talk about it is is to talk about the difference between fine art and design. Um, and uh, my wife works in an art school in Loughborough University, and uh, there are the fine artists, and there's a lot there that is just about the purity of expression. If it's in, you get it out, and you express it, and, th and that's a lot about what the art is about. But design always always has form and function, and I think that that's a really helpful thing to think about when it comes to, to music, but specifically for songs for worship. They have a form which is an aesthetic, the musicality, the poetry and the rest of it. But it also has a function. It's, it's to do something. It's to communicate something or to lead on a certain journey and so on. So having that little little grasp, you can then begin to actually fit quite a lot of different genres and styles uh, and, and approaches um, into that. But I tend to I probably you know, throw out four things. Um, that we tend to think about at Resound Worship. I don't say, you know, does it communicate a truth that is true? Um, is it memorable and, and or engaging? Is it singable? And I think that's a really interesting one. I remember as a, a, a child being growing up in a Baptist church, and we had the Baptist hymn book, but we also had Graham Kendrick on the other hand. So we were sort of singing these new Graham Kendrick songs. And I remember as a child, who was sort of five or six, we'd sing these new choruses, and maybe it was the choruses before Kendrick, actually, and they'd all seem very intuitive. And then we'd sing a hymn from the hymn book. 
And I'd be absolutely bewildered how anybody knew where the tune was going. And yet somebody from a different context would probably have the complete opposite um, experience of those things. But is it singable in a, in a broad sense? And then does it have artistic merit? Just, you know, is there something about it that, that's worth existing? I think if you can take fairly simple categories like that, then you begin. You can begin to do. Well, I say to people, I think I can help you to write a competent song. I can't promise it'll be a great song, but I think we can take what you've got and make it as good as it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's. It's. I. I, I would say a, a very similar things. So I think the one of the things I would add is that there's something about it being able to grasp our our hearts, to grasp our minds, maybe to to resonate with us. So, um, you know, the songs that I will always remember are the ones that either have a particular meaning for me from a particular time in my life um, or just speak to me so clearly about God and my relationship with him that they, they just, that I always want to sing them and uh, things like that. There's also a sense of, some people will talk about a hook, that a song needs some sort of hook that, that draws you draws you in, not in a sense of, um, you know, brainwashes or anything like that, but that you can easily pick up and you hear that moment and you go, yes, I know this song. I, 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 I remember this. I will join in with it. Um, and it isn't about style. It isn't about particular style. We're, we're all different, aren't we? We all have different personal tastes and, and you know, one person will say that that song is good. Another person will say, Oh, not so. Um, but there is a sense of making sure that for a congregational song, it's, it's got to be singable. It's got to be memorable. Um, and, uh, speak clearly of who God is and and our relationship with him so is the hook is that the bit that you sing when you're doing the washing up you know when you're washing up and you just (laughs) it's an old hymn or if it's a modern worship song there's like a two-line bit that you just keep humming that's the hook yes yeah and sometimes that will be a bit of a chorus sometimes it could be the the bridge it could be all sorts of little bits of a song that that are just the bits that that you remember very easily and I could quote lots of them um but we'd be here all day (laughs) Chris, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with anything that um, that Joel and Eleanor have said. I think for me, um, and I'm I'm thinking of this as um, the relationship between words and music, where in the case of um, traditional hymns, they've often not been written by the same person. Mm. So for me, writing a good hymn tune um, is uh, about a really good relationship between the music and the words. So um, I don't mean something as superficial as having a uh, the melody rising if you're singing about going up a hill or something like that, but um, it can be something that catches the mood <laughs> of the text. Um, and also, and this is one of my, one of my personal bugbears, um, is respecting the stress patterns of the words. Um, I, I studied modern languages and linguistics at university, so I have a, a real interest in language. And now working as a professional musician, the relationship between the two, I think, is incredibly mm. important. Um, and for me, the best, uh, the best hymns are the ones where, um, where, where that is respected. And, um, and, of course, that's difficult in a hymn because you've got different words to the same tune. Um, and even in, um, among some of the bangers, which I, um, there, are, there are some, some real clangers. And two that occurred to me was... Bangers and clangers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in, uh, in Tell Out My Soul, The Greatness of the Lord, which for me is certainly a, a banger. I think the, the, the term I tend to use when we're discussing these things in uh, meetings with the presenters, we talk about tub thumpers. Um, 
And so, but there you have in second or third verse, um, powers and dominions, and you have a big stress on the word and, which clearly you wouldn't have in in speech. Mm -hmm. And the last line of one of my favourite Christmas carols, it came upon the midnight clear, you have, and the whole world. (laughs) And and so, you know, I think you you, you can never get it perfect. But, um, you know, when, when you get those two things that marry up really well, that for me is... Um, th- that's the kind of the gold standard. Do, do you know that's the, the if I had to say the one thing that when people bring me songs and we look through them, the one easy fit, I mean, it's not easy in that it's not always straightforward how you're going to do it, but the one thing you can obviously pick out with almost every single time is fixing the prosody of the words. It's trying to get mm. those stresses and rhythms in the right places. And sometimes it's like a light going on for people. They, they Oh, it never even occurred to me I'd have to do that. And the other thing I often say is, say the words and listen to the rhythm of your speech listen to the melody and the rhythm of your speech now that's miles off from how you've set it in the song so maybe you could try mm. adapting and and it's but i really find that's one of the most helpful things you can offer people. <laughs> i totally agree and it's interesting listening to this because i'm listening to sort of three musicians talking and everything <laughs> that you're saying there it's kind of making sense to me but as a member of a congregation it would just be you know, assailing me, sort of sweeping over me, and I would just intuitively know, wow, this, this, this is working for me. This is, this is bringing me into the presence of God, or this is, yeah. this is my emotions. Um, but it's fascinating hearing that kind of technical aspect, um, even down to the sort of the stresses and the syllables of the words and things. I think. Um, so just just to, to to add one thing, um, just coming back to what what Joel said, um, with we often have members of the choir um that will come to us with uh, things that they've written, and typically, um, it will be a, a setting of a text that um they sing lots or um, a, a text that they know already. So most obvious case being um, settings of the ordinary of the mass or of the um, evening canticles, and of course when they do that, they come to it with the baggage for want of a better term of all the other settings of those words that they've heard um <laughs> now i would hope that most of the settings that we that we sing with the cathedral choir are um good settings of those words some better than others of course and it's interesting sometimes how much you find that um they've um they've composed the music they want to compose and have then sort of shoehorned the words into it afterwards even despite having um you know however many um, good examples in front of them. So I think you know what you when you say, Joel, talk about the, the light bulb moment where you say to somebody, "Look, you, know, you, you need to do that," and and that not having occurred to them, I think it's it's really interesting. Mm. It, it makes me think that there are times a bit like the chicken and the egg that you know which comes first, the music or the words. Um, and um, I think there, there's a real challenge in writing what music to words that sometimes we we can miss and people can miss because they're we're so focused on the music sometimes that we don't think about all of that um but they do they have to go together and and it's beautiful when it works and it's a bit of a mess when it doesn't <laughs> so we've used the word good a number of times here to about you know a good hymn um it needs to have good mm. words a good tune good worship song um just interesting this word good because there is a subjectivity about the way in which we appropriate music and, and stuff. But in relation to worship music, is God a cultural relativist? Yeah, is he is he as happy with popular culture as he is with high culture? You know, how appropriate even is the language of good? Oh, well, I, I think I, I wouldn't want to think that that you know, God is into a particular style or a particular culture, you know, actually, 
surely the most important thing for God is whether the worship is focused on him, if the worship is about him. So we're not into worshipping the music. We're into worshipping God. And and that can be in, in, in popular style. It can be in high culture. It's about the meaning behind behind the worship um i i i find it very difficult to imagine that that god doesn't appreciate it when when we sing in something that's a bit more popular in its culture than something that's high culture i think both have their value and i think it's just really important that um the reason behind the worship is him and not about the music um you know, some of the the most beautiful music that I, I love Bach and I love um, his music and I love the reason behind his music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you uh, they found his Bible, um, I don't know when it was, quite a few years ago now, but in the in the margins of that Bible are all sorts of quotes that Bach wrote about music and and worship and and of course he he was a Christian and he professed to be a Christian and he would um, talk about his music being for the glory of God alone and it comes out in his music and some people might say that that music is more high culture um, but it speaks to God just as much uh, uh, to God and worships God just as much as something that was written yesterday might do um, and it's so it's not about the culture it's not about the anything like that I believe it is primarily about God and about worshiping him and that's what's important for him as well certainly with you on uh, on Bach uh, mm. you know, my, and, and that's that's not just because I'm an organist I mean it's, <laughs> it's really the, the the choral music that yeah um, that, I, that I first came to um, and um, I think I mean the, the interesting thing about Bach is um, you know we, we as you say we've got evidence of, of his own faith um, mm. but equally um, I think it, this is one of the really interesting things we uh, if we think about some of the um, greatest British composers of the 20th century um, uh, and composers whose music we sing um, at the cathedral regularly thinking Howells and Vaughan Williams mm. um, who um, had a, a very kind of love-hate relationship with faith um, and yet produced some of the most sublime um, music which um, I think clearly is a vehicle for, um, for 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 people to worship, even if they may have had difficulty doing so um, themselves. I think on the thing of good and bad, I mean, it's it's a it's too clear a dichotomy. I would want to stick my neck out and say there is such a thing as good music and bad music, but mm. I then want to wind my neck in and say um, that I couldn't give you the criteria which determined where the boundary is. Um, and I would also want to be clear that wherever that boundary is, um, there's high culture music, whatever that is, and low culture music, whatever that mm. is, on both sides of the boundary. Yeah. Um, and um, time can be a very good arbiter. Um, mm. I remember when I was at music college in Dusseldorf, one of the lecturers there who was um, a Lutheran pastor, he had a collection of old hymn books and he brought in some from the 17th and 18th century and got us to flick through them and said, tell me, tell me how many of these hymns, you know, and it was about 10%. Um, And um, we then looked at some of the rest of them and without wishing to put too fine a point on it, there was dross. And um, what had happened over the years was that people had, uh, as, as, uh, new hymns had been written, the best of the old had been retained, 
um, and and the rest had had gone by the wayside. Charles Wesley wrote over eight thousand hymns. How many of those do we still sing now? You know, we, we've kept the best of them. So my guess is that two hundred years from now about the same proportion of what's being written at the moment, um, whether that's um, uh, in, a, in a contemporary style or in the traditional style, about, about the same proportion will still be being sung in, in, in 200 years' time. And that's really interesting, Chris, that thing you said about uh, almost um, longevity as a test of whether something's good. Uh, I wonder whether that will apply quite so much to some of the more modern stuff. Uh, I think some of the contemporary worship, which is in a more hymn-like style, I think that might be the case, um, but I'm just thinking, I've been a Christian for just over 30 years. And I remember when I first became a Christian, the contemporary worship music was kind of like um, folk pop with inhibitions. <laughs> and it went through a stage when it was kind of a little bit like stadium rock with inhibitions. Uh, and it can, it kind of tends to mirror something. And then to date, so even some of the really good Graham Kendrick songs where the lyrics are strong and theologically um, kind of resilient and make sense and work and, and all that, they kind of sound a little bit, of their era. And I wonder if with the more contemporary music, a lot of it, there is a built-in obsolescence, which is there even if the song on its own terms is good. Um, I don't know. Have you got any thoughts on that, Joel? I mean, I think you're probably right. I, I think that's, I think, and I think that's probably fine. If, if all we had were, um, you know, worship songs with a built-in obsolescence, then I think we would be missing something. But because we don't, because we do have a, we have a breadth of, the ancient and historic and the tried and tested right through to the very current things you know you and, and they can do some jobs can't they some you can you can write and sing a, a song one week which just expresses exactly what's happening in that moment it doesn't necessarily need to do any more than that mm. but if that's all you ever have then it's very difficult for that worship um music and words to play the formative um role that they probably ought to have in worship i, I always think as well i mean this is branching out but just having that balance of making sure when you worship you do sing some things that are very new and some things that are very old just to remind you that that um christianity didn't start with your generation mm. Mm. Uh, but then at the same time christianity is alive and fresh and vibrant in your generation i think if you can balance those things and you, you do a good job yeah i think yeah it's really good just to just to come in there about um as it were sing, singing the songs of the moment um uh, Certainly prior to uh, Mendelssohn's time, um, part of Bach's job was to compose the music for the service on yeah. uh, each Sunday. Yeah. Um, and um, he did so uh, without any expectation that anybody would sing it after um, after he died. So, you know, it would then be his successor's job to write the music mm. for each Sunday. Um and it was really only, um, I would say, um, thanks to uh, Mendelssohn rediscovering the St. Matthew Passion and putting on a performance of it, that the idea of singing music of eras gone by or performing music of eras gone by really became uh, it became current. Um, and I think we're, we're richer for it. Um, but uh, there is, of course, a danger, if you're not careful, that you spend all your time only performing music that's been written by basically dead white men um, and there's yeah. a lot more other music out there mm -hmm. and talk about the relationship between words and music how important is it that words stretch people's understanding uh, and and then i guess conversely how important is it that the words are easily understood you know is there a balance to be struck um i mean joel you you do words for a living um what, what would your take be on that 
Um, I, I mean, there probably is a balance to be struck. I'm going to stick my neck out and I'm going to push more towards they need to be understood than they need to stretch. Um, there's a, a quote, which I don't know who said it, but that um, poems should, oh, let me get this right, um, po- poetry should challenge your way of thinking, but hymns should remind you of what you already know. Mm. And um, you can, you know, you can probably test that until it falls apart. But there's a sense in which it's true in that a poem often is something which which is designed to provoke and to challenge, to make you think and to reflect and so on. And all those things can happen in a hymn. But when you consider how we use a hymn, um, we it's often it's something we sing together very often. So that it puts a demand on it. You're sort of, you've got to try and find something to say which most people can go along with. And there's no real opportunity for nuance. And as somebody who works in um well, as somebody who works with songwriters most of the time, and that's where I'm more at home though, I do edit hymn texts. In worship songs there are even fewer words. And the fewer words you have, the less nuance <laughs> there can be. So if you introduce a new you might have to challenge somebody's way of thinking theologically. But if you just throw it into a worship song, there's nothing to put around the, the, the outside of it to try and make sense of it. In a hymn, there's a bit more room. In a sermon, there's a lot of room. And were you to make quite an extreme statement in a or a particularly challenging statement, you'd spend time on it, wouldn't you? you talk around it and so on. You'd develop an argument. So I think it's difficult to really uh, challenge and stretch people's understanding. But where you do in a, in a song or a, a hymn, the way you do it, I think, is by introducing things that people already believe but but setting them together in a way which then ex- the implication that the the ongoing resonance of it would be different i was thinking about this particularly about the the black lives matter movement because i think that's such a good example of something which is incredibly challenging and at the same time we all agree with it. I mean, it's a bit, well, more or less, you know, those of us who go to, um, of course, Black Lives Matter. And so it's a statement we already believe, but by by putting it in a certain place in a certain way, it has a new kind of resonance and becomes more challenging. And I think often that's the way it tends to have to work in congregational song. You can find just kind of slight exceptions to it, but it's uh, but broadly, I would, that's how I would encourage and advise to do that. I think I would. Um not want to say that hymns uh that i wouldn't want hymns to to stretch and challenge the the advantage of course of hymns and and worship songs which we um which become part of the repertoire and which we sing regularly is that the the words and the tunes stick in our mind so we sort of carry them around with us um and work through them and and think about them even when we're not singing them um and i think that's um uh, a a tremendous advantage of them so if you have a line in a, a, a hymn or a worship song that that you can't quite work out, then you're, you're going to think about it, and, and possibly it will be more memorable through through the repetition than um, uh, a line in a sermon might have been. Um, I think my gold standard for the words, as as someone who doesn't write them, um, is that I I want somebody a. a, a a good wordsmith to give expression to something that I couldn't express myself in words. So mm. I might, I might pray, God, give me your Holy spirit and make me a more loving person. <laughs> um, and which is a, a good sentiment. I wouldn't claim it has any great uh, poetic value, but then if somebody comes along and writes, Oh, thou who camest from above the fire celestial to impart kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. You know, just saying that now that's sending tingles down my spine. Um, so uh, and and that was that that's Charles Wesley. So having um, dissed 
um, the majority of his hymns a moment ago. That's kind of um, to, uh, to to show that I um, that, that 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 particular hymn is is one that we've had at um, family weddings and funerals for, for for generations. So there's there's something about the way that a poet um, can put those things into words that maybe says the same thing that I want to say, but just does it better. I think there's also a, a, a thing about one of one of my big uh, issues is how do we make sure children are engaged in in sung worship and um i've had conversations with people when we when we've sung a, a hymn where there's some words that are quite complex um that the their parents have said well my child didn't understand that and and that's a question i have i don't i don't know what the answer is about i want to allow children to have the opportunity to to sing some things that might have to make them think a little bit but I need to know that the parents are going to help them or do I explain that and and I think that's a real challenge for us thinking about how we engage children in in song worship and without just dumbing down all the time <laughs> it, absolutely really difficult yeah. balance. and and that's obviously a question that my colleagues and I wrestle mm. with daily because um we we're working with um the uh, the cathedral choirs yeah. and um uh, the, the majority of whom are under the age of of 20 and more so than in lots of cathedrals um and I think I mean my experience is that children ask questions blimey don't children ask <laughs> questions um and um for our for our children um, for example singing the psalms you know you somebody puts their hand up and says well what's a tabernacle yeah. then? um and I either need to know the answer myself or I need to say, mm, not quite sure, but I know somebody who does. Um, and um, so so I think it's the uh, you know, children are naturally inquisitive. And also, I mean, there's something about um, when um, w- there's something about the it's what I was saying a moment ago. These words sort of become part of the fibre of, of, of your being. And one example, which. Um, I go back to a lot is that of my uncle who was a chorister at Exeter Cathedral in the 1950s and um, he was singing psalms every day so he got through half the Psalter every month um, and was doing that for five years and they were sort of etched on his brain and he died in 2012 of cancer and um, towards the end of his life when he was too weak to hold a book when he was awake in the night and feeling restless um, he was able just to recite these words in his mind of, from from the Psalms, um, and that was a source of tremendous comfort to him. So I think the, the the educational value of some of these words going in at that age, even if um, they don't process them at that age, it's a being a Christian's a lifelong business um, and beyond. I'm, I think we would all assume so. Um, we don't necessarily need to worry about quick results all the time. Mm. John, can I just jump in with one one more example? Because it's something we're working on very, right now, and it, I should have thought of it. Um, we, as a group, we've been working on a, an album which we're releasing very soon. It's a collection of thirteen new songs, contemporary worship songs on themes of ecology and creation, and um, hope for new creation, and so on. And and it's a good example of something where actually we are trying to stretch and challenge congregations. Um, because we've identified that the, the very few worship songs which have anything like those kind of themes in and where they do, even sometimes they have a slightly quirky eschatology in them, um, 
and and a way that we've we've approached this is to just say what well, one of the ways we stretch and challenge is just by singing about it so in this case it, is ecology important is it a worship issue yes well how do we reinforce that message in our churches that it's a matter of christian discipleship and so on we sing about it we'll write some we try and write some good songs that people want to sing and then just as chris was saying then they become memorable then they they buzz around your head they become more part of who you are and, and sort of more deeply in in immersed in what you believe mm-hmm. and it'd be really interesting I'd, I'd love to ask um congregations i'm just thinking of some of the hymns um where the lyrics are either difficult or impenetrable um is it um cardinal newman's you know the G- dream of gerontis one um all that first adam second adam theology which is fantastic and i get it and you know it's picked up there in romans isn't it that typology congregations must have sung that for generations not having a clue what it meant um and, and i always wondered when come thou fount of every blessing got kind of um souped up and turned into a kind of modern worship song style but retained the old lyrics i always felt i had to explain to people and what here i raise my ebenezer mm. meant I want a congregation singing about an old testament illusion that they didn't understand and then you think of things that are another wesley thing but things like and can it be you know thine eye diffused a quickening ray what does that mean yeah yeah, um, yeah we, we can debate what it means but when you sing it in the moment um yeah the tune's great but what are the congregation thinking's going on there uh, and i was involved over the weekend in a discussion with a bunch of uh, people into theology is that um, exhibiting an Arminian or Calvinist theology of conversion, you know, and we couldn't agree. You know, some people said, no, God, thine eye diffused, you know, that's God, God sending out provenient grace, enabling the person to respond. Others were saying, this is God seeing what the person's doing, moving towards him and God's responding to their response. And that was a bunch of theology graduates mm. trying to work with one line from Wesley and saying, I don't know. So, yeah, it's just strange to think of these generations of Christians really enjoying singing something possibly not having a clue what they're singing about um and does that matter i don't know i mean i i would say it 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 doesn't because i mean you the example that you've just given is that this one line provided you with um material for a um for for a whole discussion i'm guessing that among theology graduates the discussion will have been at a different level than it might have been um among uh, a, a regular sunday congregation of non-specialists but it it's fulfilled a function in triggering discussion and saying well what do we actually think about it let's not worry about what it means but you know if if it does mean that is that something we're comfortable with have we thought about it in that way before so um i'm 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 comfortable with that and uh, unless we establish that it that it's really saying something that that we don't believe and that we're not happy with and that we really don't want to say um then um i i think you know just just having that as a um a trigger for discussion and ultimately a catalyst for deeper understanding i i see that as being something positive and it's something that certainly um energizes me when we you know when you start talking about these things and having to dig into them and it's often the case that it it's questions from the choristers that make me have to think about what some of these things mean i'll, I'll just give you one more example um very popular um anthem with uh, a traditional choir is Charles Wood's setting of words by H.R. Bramley, O Thou the Central Orb. And when I was living in Germany, I was part of a a project that was um, trying to uh, make Anglican choral music more accessible to German choirs by providing them in German translation. Um, And so I sat down and tried to do a translation of O Thou the Central (laughs) Orb, having been singing it since I was a chorister aged eight. And I thought, you know what, I don't have a clue what this is on about. 
Um, and um, it's, so it's, it's, it's those kinds of things that then forced me to, to do some digging. I'm not sure I'm necessarily any the wiser, um, but it's, um, it's, it's a valuable thing to do. It's a valuable intellectual exercise. Mm. And so it brings me on to another thought. I mean, sometimes there are some wonderful choral pieces that are all in Latin. Uh, and I know some people might say, well, didn't we have a reformation to sort that out? Um, but actually, what do we think about that? Is it if those are used in corporate worship, is it important that there's a translation sort of printed in the order of service if there's a written order of service so that people know what's going on? Or is it OK, do you think, sometimes just to roll with it, trust that the lyrics are theologically OK and just enjoy the music? I don't know what you think. I mean, this must be kind of something that you, you've had to think about, Chris. What, what thoughts have you got? Yeah, well, and of course, it's not just Latin. Um, certainly since I've been um, director of music at Leicester, the cathedral choir sung in French, German, Irish, Old Church, Slavonic, 14th century Italian, Urdu. Um, and um, I remember a conversation with the presenter at another cathedral on, on the subject of music for an ordination service. Um, and I'd suggested a, a Latin mass setting. Um and uh, he came back with, well, what would you say if someone argued that it should be sung in the vernacular? Um, to which I replied, well, if you're asking me that in Leicester, I'd say, which vernacular? <laughs> um, and it was a bit of a smart aleck comment. Um, but I think the point holds. Um, we, The church of which we are part, by no means everybody's first language is English. And if we see ourselves as being united with um, the church worldwide and with the company of saints in heaven, um, then in a sense, you know, there's a range of languages and we, we can use them all. Um, and in many ways, um, uh, you, you could argue that of, of all the languages we have at our disposal, lang uh, Latin is possibly the fairest one because it's nobody's first language um, anymore. Um, that's not, of course, to say we shouldn't sing in English or, or French or other languages, but um I, I do think it's important that there's a that there's a translation printed in the order of service because otherwise um, you're not enabling the congregation who don't uh, speak the language that you're singing in um, to uh, maybe appreciate how the composer has gone about treating a particular text um, and so on, which I think is often part of the the beauty of the music. Um, but um, I, I I don't see a problem in in uh, if we say singing in other languages rather than singing in Latin. I think it makes it. Uh, makes it clearer perhaps yeah I mean I, I think it's I think I would agree I, I do think it's important to have a translation um, because there's something about accessibility isn't there and, and and helping people understand a bit more about what's going on I mean I was thinking about the the, the charismatic um, church I'm part of you know if someone would to would speak out in in a tongue for example we would we would ask for someone who had a, a translation of that that it's it's making sure that it's things are accessible and people understand what's going on. Um, the other thing I was thinking is that we um, we did a carol service last year uh, when we could all meet to sing, and um, we actually had someone come and translate into British Sign Language um, our carol mm -hmm. services, and we think with it, it was the only one in the whole of Northamptonshire, and it was so beautiful. Uh, to see someone uh, translating the carols and the words that we were singing in, into BSL, that I know people were transfixed by it, but there's that reminds me of, of the beauty of, of of music and the beauty of things, and and I think yeah, it's right to have translations, but there is also something about recognising the beauty of music, and you know we haven't particularly touched on on the instrumental music. That instrumental music obviously doesn't have any language with it. Um, 
but all music has a beauty and, and a power. Sometimes it has less beauty. We'll probably all agree with that. But but there is something beautiful about music that does something different. And there are times when it's good just to listen. Um, I think if there are words, then it's good to know roughly what the words say. But I would I love it when when there's instrumental music. I mean, for example, David playing his harp over Saul when he was, uh, you know, really struggling with things. That the power of that. Um, in that moment must have just been incredible. And um, I'm waffling on about all sorts of things there, but there is something about beauty as well. And it's trying to get that balance, isn't it, I think, in in what we do. I would probably, as a governing principle, I would think of what Paul says to the Corinthian church, yeah. because the, you know, the New Testament is disappointingly sparse <laughs> on instructions for how we do things musically in church, isn't yes. it? Um, and even when Paul talks about worship, he's he's less interested in that. But the thing he seems to be particularly concerned about is that you you say you don't leave each other behind. Yeah. You don't that you essentially you value one another, and that's the mo- that's the highest priority right. in your gathered worship. And or that was their particular thing they were doing wrong. And you can easily see that any church, whether it is um, whether it's a cathedral or a very contemporary loud rock band or whatever it might be can put a musical aesthetic above um make it more important than the the well-being of the people or the relationships between the people and so on i think if paul saw that in any Mm. setting he'd have the same critique as he has for the principles yeah yeah thank you for listening to part one of our rethinking aloud musing and worship podcast tune in next week for part two